Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, June 10th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Slash Film Writers Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, it's been a while since I've hosted this thing, but Peter is having uh, some work done on his uh, condo, on his apartment right now, so lots of drilling going on, so he asked me to shoulder the burden of hosting Slash Film Daily, Uh, and let's just get right into the news today. Uh, HT, let's start off with you. Um, We learned some stuff about Comic-Con this year. It's going to be a much different Comic-Con than anything we've ever seen before. What are the latest details about Comic-Con 2020? Yes, so San Diego Comic-Con, the organizer of the annual Geek Fest that takes place at the San Diego Convention Center every year, uh, revealed new details about Comic-Con at Home, which is the virtual experience that will be replacing this year's Comic-Con. It was announced last month that it would be held, and it's going to be held on the same dates that this year's Comic-Con would have taken place, which is uh, July 22nd to 26th. And the new details uh, basically... speak about the features that will be at this virtual convention experience, which can be attended by anyone, regardless of whether they purchased um, a ticket or badge for Comic-Con. So this is something that's uh, free and uh, not limited to anyone to attend. And the features include an online exhibit hall, exclusive virtual panels and presentations on comics, gaming, television, film, um, and a wide variety of topics from publishers, studios, and more, and uh, a masquerade, gaming, and other activities that they can participate in from your own home. So there will be fun little badges offered in which people can print them out and wear them themselves, and an official Comic-Con at home hashtag that will be included um, so that you can be included in virtual activities. So uh, this is uh, there, there isn't an official schedule released yet or who will be participating in these panels um, and uh, presentations, but those announcements and details will be revealed leading up to the event. So, uh, Brad, I have to ask you, I I think as the person on this podcast who has attended the most Comic-Cons over the years, what do you make of this? Are you like... um 
I guess, intrigued by the way that Comic-Con is handling this this year? Do you think it might have been better to just cancel the event altogether and wait until 2021? Are you, do you think that there's a chance that this uh, completely online version of Comic-Con is, um, is going to be a success? Um, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's hard to gauge, you know, what success would even mean for an event like this, you know, I mean, really, all you can do is measure how many people watch and engage with, you know, various uh, links and videos and uh, virtual panels and whatnot. And it's, you know, it's just gonna be weird all around. I I feel like there's gonna be some things that people really get into because uh, there'll be a much greater opportunity for people to get their hands on Comic-Con exclusive merchandise and things like that. But at the same time, you know, it's the the spirit isn't going to be there. It won't be the same because, you know, you're not going and interacting with a lot of different fans or getting a chance to meet the people who make, you know, your favorite shows, uh, movies, comics, what have you. So I, I think that it, this is just really it's, it's a consolation prize. You know, it sucks that the convention isn't happening this year, but they're taking the same route that a lot of other places uh, events have done by doing something virtually as best they can. And so I feel like this will probably be hopefully be the best version of that. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I, it, it sucks, but it's one of those things that is just necessary right now. HT, what do you think? You've, you've been to Comic-Con a couple times now. Um, are you looking forward to this online version? Well, I've only been once, but I really enjoyed going when I did go. Um, and I, won- I wonder if it'll work out. Uh, I've done like one virtual film festival so far with Tribeca, and that was still kind of an isolating experience. Like you're just watching screeners at home alone. So I wonder if you'll still get that same communal experience that made Comic-Con so fun. But I do think making it in uh, a short three, four day space and uh, encouraging people to participate as well as just in as well, just like tune into virtual presentations and panels will kind of recreate that in a sense. I I hope so, at least. Um, But uh, I wonder if it'll get people as um, involved and interacting as as Comic-Con usually is. Chris, as somebody, uh, I mean, I, I think it's it's fair to say you've said multiple times that you would just prefer to stay home all the time uh, and, and watch things from the comfort of your own home. So is this sort of the ideal version of Comic-Con for you? Or are you actually going to tune in and, and check out some of these panels of, uh, you know, I guess let's pretend that you weren't having to cover it for work or something. Is this something that you would actually check out because it's completely free and online? Maybe, I guess. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I... <laughs> The only thing that ever interested me about Comic-Con was, you know, trailers for things. Other than that, I, you know, I don't really care about the panels or anything like that. Um, I mean, this is certainly better than standing in line for hours in in the San Diego sun, I guess. So that's a, that's a plus. (laughs) Uh, Well, you bring up a good point. I mean, you know, a a lot over the past, I would say, I don't know, five years or something, it seems like more and more trailers have been going online from Comic-Con, you know, immediately, you know, as they're happening, basically, as they were airing in Hall H. So, Brad, do you think there's going to be I mean, it kind of like removes the the, the whole the idea that this entire thing is going to be online kind of removes the the uh, special factor of like being in the room and seeing new footage that nobody else is going to see so it seems like whatever footage they release i mean it's going to be instantly ripped even if you know studios don't release it from their official youtube channel or whatever like (laughs) they're basically begging for people to uh zoom in on things and and go frame by frame through all that stuff so do you think studios are going to bring 
as many trailers and videos and stuff this year? Or do you think it's going to be sort of a lighter year as far as Comic-Con is concerned? Uh, I think that we might see less as far as movies are concerned, of course. But that, that's even been a trend at the actual Comic-Con anyway. You know, I, I think TV shows will still be fine putting stuff out there. And, you know, it's it's the perfect opportunity to just put stuff out there for an even larger audience to see. You know, there's um, more often recently at Comic-Con, there's been less exclusive footage that doesn't end up online um at least not officially and so i I think that maybe it's just better for the overall marketing especially since you know studios and networks are hurting right now because they haven't been able to make any new content for the past few months that it's just going to be for the best to put anything out there that they can to whet the appetite of fans who are hungry for something and you know uh, there's obviously blockbusters that are still getting released at the end of the year that were pushed from summer that have something to show. I'm sure Wonder Woman 1984, you know, would be something that can show show off footage that fans would be very happy to see. Uh, mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers has always been pretty good about releasing that kind of stuff online, too. So I think that we'll, we'll see a good amount of stuff that studios and uh, TV networks uh, put out online for fans to watch. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to uh, HBO Max. Um, there was a, you know, HBO Max just launched and it has a, a pretty impressive movie library. But one of its, uh, I guess, biggest movies has been removed from the library very quickly after its launch. Uh, Brad, tell us about that. Yes. The uh, classic Gone with the Wind uh, has been taken out of the HBO Max library for the time being. Uh, after a plea from 12 Years a Slave writer John Ridley uh, in the Los Angeles Times, uh, asked them to remove it. Um, and that's largely because even though Gone with the Wind is a, a, a Hollywood classic, um, it's been, you know, in the, the zeitgeist for the longest time, you know, but it's always been criticized for uh, its depiction of slavery. Uh, it makes it seem like uh, slaves were content and loyal to their owners, uh, and it also had plenty of racial stereotypes. Um, and because of that, John Ridley thought that right now it really isn't the best time for a movie like that to be on HBO Max and that uh, it should be taken off temporarily, but then brought back uh, with a discussion um, to provide some historical context so that people understand that this is not an accurate depiction of uh, you know, the uh, antebellum South uh, before the Civil War and that this is not you know, slavery as it is in the history books. Um, you know, Ridley himself says he doesn't believe in censorship, but he wants this movie to be uh, portrayed responsibly. Uh, and for their part, HBO Max did take it down and they provided a statement um, about the racist depictions uh, and how they were wrong then and they're wrong now. They actually borrowed some of the verbiage from um, a disclaimer that they put in front of some Looney Tunes that they released at home video because there are some classic animated shorts that have uh, stereotypical depictions of people of other races. But they had, um, I think it was Whoopi Goldberg did like a, an intro to explain it and say we're presenting them uncut because to uh, not present them or present them edited would be to deny they ever existed. And so that's, you know, basically what needs to be done uh, with Gone with the Wind. And so I think it's a smart move. Obviously, some people are, you know, saying that uh, comparing this to like burning books or erasing history. But obviously, since they're going to bring it back at some point with historical context, that's not the case. And people need to grow up. HD, I want to ask. Oh, go ahead. You're going to ask me anyways. Um, I just want to add that it's not censorship if it's a private company uh, taking it out of their circulation. It's only censorship if it's the government. And this is only the free market doing its work um, as it's supposed to be. So I just think it's really funny when people pull out the argument censorship when it's not, in fact, falls under that umbrella of censorship. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, I was actually going to ask you, HD, about like uh, in in HBO Max and and Warner Media's statement here. They say um, these racist depictions were wrong then and are wrong today, and we felt that to keep this title up without an explanation and a denouncement of those depictions would be irresponsible. So uh, it's going to return with you know a discussion of its historical context and a denouncement of those very depictions and i'm just wondering what you make of, of that part because like brad said you know like the whoopi goldberg thing on those looney tunes like you know we've talked about this for um song of the south on disney plus and stuff like how it would make a lot of sense for these companies to get uh film critics or historians or people who know what they're talking about to provide you know some sort of intro or something like that but the idea of denouncing uh what this movie shows that's kind of an interesting step that I don't think I've seen other studios mention. Where does the line get drawn there? What do you make of that? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I don't know about like, I think it's, I think it is a good, um, I think it is a good like step in terms of like where putting into context these films and like Gone with the Wind especially, uh, which sort of glamorizes that the uh, Civil War South and Antebellum South and everything. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I wonder like where the line is because it it, I, it depends on who um, you're bringing in, like experts and other people who are curating who have been curating these kind of films for years, like whether they will be coming into uh, so. It, to so-called like denounce these films and denounce the depictions of racial caricatures and stereotypes. Um, I think it is a smart move, especially just because um, it's, uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out like the correct wording for this. I think it, yeah, I think it's just like, especially like in discussions of like where these um, pieces stand as like pieces of history or as um, in which they should, should be, you studied in context of like how they affect our current worldview and that kind of thing. Um, I'm kind of rambling right now, but I, I don't know where the line would be drawn. Honestly, it's a, it's a bit of a complicated question. Um, no, I think, I think you, you hit it right on the head. Like the idea of, of, you know, how it affects our current worldview is a big mm -hmm. deal because I think there's a difference between them, you know, denouncing the depictions in a movie like this versus just denouncing, you know, like we at Warner Media denounce the idea of ripping somebody's face off in the movie Face Off. Like, you know, there there is a line there, but and and I think you you drew it very well right there, just saying like, you know, this is something that actually affects real people and and has a place in our history. Um, so yeah, I, I think you answered the question pretty well. So, okay. uh, even though I, I yeah sort of dropped it on you from out of nowhere. But uh, I guess let's move on to our next story. So, um, Chris, a new Evil Dead movie is coming. I think we've been talking about, or, or maybe Sam Raimi has been talking about, there's been lots of rumors about what's going on in the, the Evil Dead universe and is a new movie coming. But it seems like, some, you know, there's actual forward progress here, right? Yes, there's even a, a title and a director. Uh, Lee Cronin, who directed... Um, an, an Irish horror movie called The Hole in the Ground, which is is pretty good. It's on um, Amazon Prime right now, if anyone wants to check it out, is now set to direct the next movie, which is called Evil Dead Now. Um, it's not going to be like a direct sequel. Bruce Campbell's Ash isn't going to be in it, and, and it's not going to be a sequel to the, uh, the, the Evil Dead reboot that came out a few years ago. It's just going to be a whole new story set in the Evil Dead world. 
So what do you make of that, Chris? Like, did you watch Ash versus Evil Dead? How, how caught up on this franchise are you? Uh, I watched the first season. I kind of got tired of it because Ash versus Evil Dead is is very much in line with the Army of Darkness version of Evil Dead. So Evil Dead, uh, for those who don't know, Evil Dead starts out as a franchise as just a, a straight up horror movie. Like the first movie even though it's very low budget and has some sort of, you know, some effects that may elicit a a laugh unintentionally. It's, it's meant to be a straightforward horror movie. Then evil dead two is sort of like a remake of that first film, but with more comedy and then evil dead three, AKA army of darkness is just full blown comedy. And I kind of liked the, you know, the middle ground. I didn't like when evil dead sort of blossomed into just, full-blown one-liners and jokes and stuff like that. And that's really what Ash versus Evil Dead was. So I kind of got exhausted with that after a while. Uh, that said, I, you know, I like the hole in the ground. This sounds like it's going to be more of a, of a horror movie than, you know, just another joke fest. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it turns out to be uh, a good film. Okay. Uh, all right. So let's move on to uh, a potential Wanted sequel. Do you guys remember Wanted? This movie came out in 2008. It starred James McAvoy, uh, Angelina Jolie, and Morgan Freeman. It was about assassins who could curve bullets in midair. And uh, it was written, I think, by Mark Millar. He was sort of like a provocateur at the time. I guess he still is. But uh, it was one of his first big movies, if not his first big movie. Uh, Timur Bekmambatov, who is the Russian director of that movie, in a recent interview, uh, basically says that a wanted sequel could be made potentially using that screen life technology that he's been developing for a while. So screen life, uh, I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, is like the uh, conceit where everything plays out on laptop or cell phone screens. Um, you would recognize it from movies like Searching and Unfriended. And uh, his company, I think it's called Bazlevs, has been sort of at the forefront of developing that uh, aesthetic and that technology. And uh, I guess he just signed a deal with Universal for um, five more movies shot in that format. And it's unclear exactly what those five movies are. He's been developing a lot of them. I think a, f- a couple of years ago or, or maybe last year, we reported that he was developing 14 of them. I think in Deadline's article yesterday, it said that he has 50 of these movies in development right now. So, you know, what does that mean in development? Is that just like a loose idea for what it could be? Uh, does that mean scripts have been written? It's unclear. But the to sort of hone in on the wanted part of this, he said, maybe do the sequel in screen life. I cannot imagine an assassin in today's world would run would run with a gun. Why? He will use drones. He will use computer technology, probably. You don't need to bend bullets anymore. You need to bend ideas. So uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd hope that you would uh, read the whole bend bullets, bend ideas part, because that's my favorite part of this statement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of a meta aspect. He's trying to tell Hollywood to, to bend your conception of what a wanted sequel could be. But, uh, you know, Wanted 2 has been in various stages of development for a long, long time. Like I said, the first movie came out in 2008. Um <sighs> I want to ask before I give my thoughts on this, I want to ask what you guys think. I want to just open the floor. Does anybody have any thoughts about this? Like the idea specifically of a wanted to happening entirely on screens. Is that something that anybody here is interested in? 
not particularly. It just it's it's a very odd film to want to turn into a screen life film, uh, so to speak. Just because the original film, um, from what I remember, is just like very stylized and mm-hmm. uh, is it based off a graphic novel? I think it is correct. It has. I or think that's not, true. Yes. Yeah. If not, it has like an incredible um, hyper like graphic novel graphic novel style. So I just don't see it translating to the more grounded, um, realistic screen life um, format very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm. So my only uh, sort of, I guess, loose pushback to that is that I, I mean, it would definitely 100% be a massive, massive aesthetic change between the first and second movie if they adopted this technology for the second film. Like, to a degree which I don't think has ever been seen in Hollywood before, probably. I think that's a safe statement. Um, But the interesting thing is that if this actually happens, and if it's successful, I feel like this screen life thing could be a way for all sorts of other unconventional sequels to tons of other different types of movies to be made. And these movies are relatively cheap. And I think that generally translates into studios giving, uh, you know, up and coming filmmakers chances that they wouldn't otherwise give, Uh, you know, when, when the budgets aren't that big, they sort of are more willing to take a risk. And I think if, you know, young and hungry and, you know, creative up and coming directors can establish themselves with a smart take on a piece of intellectual property that is recognizable to people, even if it is such a drastic difference from the way that the the first movie or, or the previous movie and whatever franchise uh, looked, I think it would be a really cool launch pad for young filmmakers. Um, I don't know if that, Chris, is that a reasonable, uh, <laughs> Is that a reasonable thing? Um, do you think that, that that makes sense? Or do you think that this entire idea of uh, of sequelizing previous movies in the screen life thing is just a, a bad call? It's it's really tough to say. I, I my, my knee-jerk reaction is to say, oh, that's dumb. But, you know, I, I thought the idea of computer screen movies was dumb to begin with. And then I've ended up liking several of them. So, I you know, I guess... Don't knock it till you try it. It should be my position on this, I guess. <laughs> what do you think, Brad? I mean, uh, I I don't care. Like it's just it's, it's just it's just that simple, really. Like it's just it's been so long, and just nah, nah, nah. nah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so what about if you don't care about wanted to? What about the idea of sequelizing other movies with this screen life? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm open to you know any kind of you know change in the traditional format if it you know works well within the story if it doesn't feel like it's a gimmick just for the sake of the gimmick i'm sure that you can apply this to um, a variety of different stories genres you know what what have you but you know i just just don't want it to be forced as like this oh this is such a groundbreaking new way to tell stories and it's like i mean sure if it works yeah but like don't try and push it as like it's the you know it's the the next evolution in cinema (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so let's move on to Dracula. Um, Chris, Blumhouse is developing a Dracula remake, and uh, director Karin Kusama has talked a little bit about it. What do we know about this upcoming Dracula movie? Uh, yeah, I, I won't read her full quote because I, I hate reading people's quotes. Uh, <laughs> but it boils down to this. she's she's. It seems like she's really trying to make a very... Uh, faithful adaptation of the book. And even though there have been, 
you know, so many Dracula adaptations, almost none of them really stick true to the book. The, the, the most, the most, uh, the best adaptation I could think of that, that really feels like the book is the Francis Ford Coppola, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And even that really changes stuff. Um, the, the one thing practically every Dracula movie does is turns Dracula into this like, you know, romantic figure. Like, yes, he's, he's a monster. Yes. He's a killer, but he's a, you know, he's a sexy monster and there's a, there's an allure about him. And in Bram Stoker's novel, that's not there. Dracula is just straight up a monster. He's also barely in the book. Um, you know, the, the first few chapters, Dracula is all over them. And then, the rest of the book, he's like a, a background character. The rest of the book is, is all the other characters like running around trying to stop him. And, you, you know, Dracula barely shows up except in, you know, mentions and stuff like that. And it, based on this quote from Karen Kusama, it really sounds like she's trying to stick true to that. She, you know, she says it's not going to be, you know, a romantic Dracula. And that's kind of cool. That's exciting to me. And that'll also really set her Dracula apart from literally every other adaptation so that's kind of cool hey see i know that you read dracula like maybe a year or so before i did uh Mm -hmm. and what do you think about this because i I remember you liking the book quite a bit i did um and i actually i haven't seen a lot of dracula adaptations so i can't put my two cents into about into that with um what chris has said about all previous dracula adaptations but um i do like the idea of him being not a romantic figure, although I I think that there is lots of literature um, speaking about how Dracula and vampires in general are sort of represent that sort of dangerous um, sexual allure. So I can see why that made it into depictions of Dracula in on the big screen. But um, I'm yeah, I'm I'm interested to see like what she does with it and whether there will be a version that's more close to the the book and um how it how he really is like he he's such an intimidating and mysterious figure in the book and i i really i like that a lot and i feel like the the movies uh or like the depictions i've seen are too much about dracula and not about everyone else so i think that just it just becomes caught up in the dracula of it all so i yeah i'm I'm interested to see like what she does with it yeah, I, I'm fully on board with this as well. I think it, it's a really smart idea to turn Dracula into like the jaws of his own story where he's barely in it. And when he does show up, it's like a really scary thing because that's how it felt when I was reading the book. It was like genuinely scary when Dracula would show up. It was like the threat was real. You could feel that this was actually um, these characters that you spend so much time with in the story are like actually in serious danger when he is around. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how just how closely she ends up sticking uh, to, to that that source material there. Um, Brad, let's talk a little bit about uh, the coronavirus. Let's let's start talking about how Hollywood may resume film and TV productions pretty soon, but um, it, it turns out it won't be too easy for them to do that. What, what's the latest here? Yes. Yeah, so uh, last uh, before last weekend, actually just before uh, California governor Gavin Newsom announced that Hollywood will be allowed to return to work uh, in California as early as June 12th. Uh, but in order for productions to get back to work, they're going to have to jump through some hoops uh, and look at some data and figure out if it's a viable or uh, safe bet to do so. Um, the California Department of Public Health released a statement through the governor's office that said, 
Uh, music, TV, and film production may resume in California, recommended no sooner than June 12, 2020, and subject to approval by county public health officers within the jurisdictions of operations following their review of epidemiological data, including cases per 100,000 population, rate of test positivity, and local preparedness to support a healthcare surge, vulnerable populations, contact tracing, and testing. So... Uh, there will be a lot of research and examination done depending on where any Los Angeles productions want to shoot uh, in order to determine whether or not they'll actually be, be able to shoot there. So approval will be acquired. They'll, they'll still have to part um, partake in the social distancing policies that were uh, proposed by the various unions and put together in documents sent to both New York and California where a lot of film and TV production takes place. Um, and so, yeah, it's it seems like it's going to be kind of complicated because there's a lot of information they're going to have to look at to figure out whether or not it's going to to work including predicting how you know a, a location might handle uh, an outbreak if it were happened to increase you know after a crew shoots there or something like that um which is mm -hmm. you know very extensive and you know could be difficult to uh to figure out so it's uh yeah like you said you know this this won't be easy uh, and it'll be really interesting to see how quickly um you know productions take advantage of this so I remember, I can't, I'm trying to remember the source and I can't, so please forgive me, but I think I read uh, Charlize Theron in a, an interview recently talk about how she was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm not going to go back to work for a little while. Like, you know, she's lucky enough to be in a position, um, uh, you know, on the A-list where she, she doesn't have to go to work. And I feel like a lot of big name people are going to take that same approach, at least until... Uh, the coronavirus pandemic is under a little bit better control. I, I don't imagine every you know big name person is just going to immediately jump back in. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, with the movies being delayed and all of that stuff from this year, and a lot of them being kicked over to next year, what do you think about this, Brad? Like the idea that uh, there's going to be a little bit of a bottleneck in 2021, and then it could take a while before we see a lot of like big big you know uh, top level productions like do you think we're just going to see a bunch of indie films from people who are more willing to take risks and um you know people who are you know hungry up-and-coming actors and stuff like that instead of uh you know big top uh you know top tier uh people what, what, what do you think is the the um not the immediate future of movies but like the 2022 what do you think that's going to look like it's tough to say because i, I feel like Sure, you, there might be lower budget indie movies that might be more prominent, but at the same time, those money, movies still need money in order to be marketed and put into theaters. And unless the return on them is going to be, you know, something great, those are still risky for studios who are already hurting for money. So studios need to get blockbusters out there uh, and really rake in the the money that comes from the guaranteed titles where people are absolutely going to buy tickets. You know, and get butts in the seats. Um, I, the trouble I think will be is that a lot of these big blockbuster productions and major studio movies require large crews in order to pull them off. So if, if anything, maybe what we'll see is it might just take longer for these movies to be made because they might have to operate with smaller crews, making it a little bit more difficult to do action sequences. Uh, you know, things with crowd scenes, you know, probably won't uh, be, be quite as common and we might see them leaning more on visual effects for things that otherwise might be accomplished by practical effects or uh, locations and things like that. And thankfully, the technology is there to allow them to do that. But even so, it, it just it remains to be seen how the industry will recover from this when there's such caution and uncertainty about how they'll be able 
to to do it. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a very precarious situation, and obviously, you know, we'll all be keeping an eye on it as it develops and continues. Yeah. And speaking of getting butts in seats, let's talk a little bit about uh, AMC Theaters. HT, they made an announcement earlier today, right? Yeah, AMC Theaters expects to be fully open globally in July. So um, AMC CEO Adam Arone had um, released in a call to investors um, details about the plan for the national theater chain, um, international theater chain, actually, to um, start opening their global locations um, almost fully by July, which would make it open in time for big blockbusters like Tenets and Mulan to hopefully boost their box offices and uh, bring the flagging businesses of AMC theaters back into operation. We've been reporting for a while now that AMC is um, on the verge of bankruptcy, and there have been concerns that the company won't make it out of the pandemic um, just because it's um, recorded so much loss and financial loss. Um, the most recent loss uh, was a, is a $2.2 billion first quarter loss that uh, was recently posted by the um, by the company. But um, wow. in the yes, yeah, it's quite a bit. And um, <laughs> they're, 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 it seems like this is um, that they, they're really relying on the success of blockbusters like Tenets and Mulan to bring them back into operation or else they'll have to declare bankruptcy. And um, it seems that this announcement that they're planning to open in July um, has boosted their stock uh, market, uh, though, because there was a bit, there was a, apparently a 15% jump uh, once they announced their reopening plans. Though Wall Street is still a little bit cautious about how receptive audiences will be when they return to theaters. So it's all kind of up in the air right now for AMC. We're not really sure if they're going to survive the pandemic. And um, they haven't yet released whatever their guidelines will be when reopening um, and what kind of precautions they'll be taking for their theaters. There was, there was uh, talk about 25% capacity, and they talked about how they've already opened a couple theaters in Norway, Germany, Spain, and Portugal, uh, with success in the US and UK are expected to follow. So um, it's, it's all kind of, um, it seems like they're trying to um, grind back into operation, um, though it's, uh, yeah, it seems like their future is still a little uncertain, especially after that big um, billion dollar loss that they took. Yeah. Yeah, I, my understanding is that basically these announcements are being made now so as like a sign to Warner Brothers that it's okay to continue marketing Tenet for, for that July 17th release because I think there was some question about you know whether or not that was actually going to happen. And it seemed, I mean, I guess as of right now, it's still on track to, to happen on July 17th. So um, that could always change. Everything is, is obviously uh, in, in a state of flux right now, but uh, that's where we are in terms of AMC. So um, let's, I guess, wrap things up today by talking about what the pandemic could do for mid-budget films at the box office. Chris, uh, what, what do we know about this? So studios have, have been soured on mid-budget films for the last few years to begin with. Uh, mid-budget films as in movies that aren't big blockbusters, movies that aren't meant to launch a franchise, you know, just standalone films that don't cost a fortune and may not have the biggest stars in the world in them. And those films were already in short supply as far as, you know, the big studios were concerned to begin with. But in, in the, you know, in the era of coronavirus, in the wake of this pandemic, studios might 
really just give up entirely on the idea of releasing mid-budget films in theaters. Uh, and that's because, you know, the, the pandemic has had have several studios just push their, their mid-budget titles directly to streaming. And the idea behind that is they're more likely to make a profit that way. Uh, you know, digital VOD titles give studios 80% of the profits, whereas if they release it theatrically, they have to share those profits with the exhibitors. So in a lot of ways, this sort of is like, like the seems like it's the final nail in the coffin for mid-budget films. Um, uh, the story I wrote up has a bunch of quotes from various insiders just talking about how it just seems to be the beginning of the end for that. Things that aren't Marvel movies essentially are just going to end up relegated to um, VOD. Uh, that, that's not to say it's definitely going to happen. That's not to say every single mid-budget movie will go right to VOD now, but it certainly seems more likely now than ever that studios are going to be embracing this idea rather than taking a loss at the box office. What do you think about that, Chris? Cause this is something that, like you mentioned, this has been, you know, things have been moving in this direction for quite some time. So it's not necessarily a surprise, but like, do you, th- I guess, has your opinion about this changed at all? You know, as the, the pandemic has, has the pandemic, uh, impacted your your thoughts on this do you think that uh from a business perspective studios are like more in the right now to to try to rely on you know these bigger movies to potentially or or do you think i don't know what i guess i'll just stop talking and and let you answer but (laughs) what do you think i mean you know everyone here knows my stance I'd, i'd watch everything at home if i could um at the same time i know there are people who who cherish that theatrical experience, and it is it will be a bit of a bummer if the you know the theater landscape, whatever it is, after all this is just nothing but Marvel stuff and blockbusters. But at the same time, that's kind of where we already are right now to be you know to begin with. So it's it's hard to like it's it's not a great situation but it's sort of the situation we're in already to begin with and you know from a business standpoint studios make 80 percent compared to sharing those profits it just makes more sense from that standpoint for them but uh what do i care about that i'm not getting any of that money so i don't know what do you think hd well for me i just i feel like um the movies that make it to the theater uh sort of shape whatever the current cultural landscape is right so you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, mid-budget films were at the top of the box office as well as big blockbusters, as well as indie films. And I feel like now it's just such a, um, there's just such a lack of variety within the box office charts that it just, um, it just feels very, uh, like a big loss to me. And I love mid-budget films. I think that they um, offer something that you don't get with blockbusters or even with indie films. They have like a, they're a good in-between, you might say. They're a good middle ground. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like, um, I actually want to know what Chris thinks about this because I feel like um, whether you prefer watching movies in the theaters or whether you prefer watching them at home, I do feel like a theatrical release gives a film more of a, just a boost in terms of awareness and the importance. And I feel like when a movie makes it straight to streaming or VOD, despite whatever, um, uh, names are attached there is less of a um just a prestige to it i guess you would say like people are like oh it goes straight to straight to video that must mean it's like not as good and i feel like that's what mid-budget movies are in danger of becoming they're just becoming less viewed as less important or less just um 
less important than they were before. So that's just my big fear in terms of like the disappearance of mid-budget films from the box office. And I feel like that's going to eventually translate to them disappearing for good. What do you make of that, Chris? No, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I feel like the solution is to find a way to make direct-to-streaming films feel more like an event. And I don't really know how you do that. You know, I know there are examples like uh, when The Irishman came out, that really felt like a big event on Netflix. Like everyone was talking about it. And this week, Netflix has a new Spike Lee movie. And that sort of feels like it's going to be an event. But, you know, those are films by big name directors. Like there has to, there has to be a way to find some sort of middle ground where, you know, people who are uh, not as well known people who don't have all that uh, historic clout behind them can find a way to make their movies uh, stand out amongst amongst the pack. But I don't, I don't know what that solution would be if there even is one. Yeah. Uh, Brad, I want to give you the last word on this. Do you have any thoughts on, uh, oh, well, everything that we've been talking about, any ideas for potential solutions to these problems or just thoughts about like the state of, uh, of movies, of theatrical movies with mid-budget films sort of stripped away from them? Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like mid-budget films are really going to start going the way of streaming since that seems to be the only place where they're getting funding for movies. Uh, A lot of these movies are uh, just aren't the kind of movies that attract people to the big screen anymore. And with so many more entertainment options at their fingertips uh, at home, they're going to theaters even less, even for the big blockbuster movies. So I I think that mid-budget movies may not die, but they'll be relegated even more to streaming. And, you know, like like we've discussed, you know, that sucks because a lot of streaming titles just get overlooked because there's just such an influx of, of new content. But, you know, I, I would love to see a way for them to be able to turn these movies into events uh, whether it's maybe through like virtual premieres, which is something we've seen with certain VOD titles uh, throughout the coronavirus pandemic, uh, where they've had uh, you know online uh, essentially Q and A panels with a movie that premiere that follows afterwards, where people can interact with the filmmakers and stars, uh, you know st- stuff like that. I, there's got to be a way to you know make it a, a big deal so that people you know want to be there maybe at a certain time almost like you know pay-per-view event uh pay-per-view events used to be back you know when uh, before on demand was a thing mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a good point uh and hopefully somebody out there and is is trying to cook up ways to make that stuff happen right now and and come up with even better ways to sort of eventize these smaller films because I, I think all of you guys have brought up some good points here that it would be such a shame to lose these things entirely to to streaming only so um yeah we'll we'll keep you posted on all of that as we learn more but uh, you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode slash film daily is published i think three times a week now bringing you bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on all the popular podcast apps and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general uh, general geographic location in case we mention your email in the air. Man, it's been a long time since we've done a mailbag episode, so maybe we'll get around to one of those uh, (laughs) one of these days. But uh, if you have a second, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next time.